thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. And today, I am finally going to get to sharing with you some of the things that Justice Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court has said about the doctrine of stare decisis that will not only corroborate what I've been telling you for the last couple of weeks, but again, help you understand why the liberals are insistent that the doctrine of stare decisis be applied to Roe versus Wade and to Planned Parenthood versus Casey. As I've noted, on December 1st, the Supreme Court will hear oral arguments as to whether those precedents should continue into the future, be modified, or reversed. And so, let's dive right in, and today I'm going to be reading from a concurring opinion that Justice Clarence Thomas wrote in a case called Gamble versus United States just two years ago, in 2019, talking about stare decisis and in a very polite way exposing the corruption, the constitutional malfeasance of the Supreme Court in its use of the doctrine of stare decisis. So I'm going to read some excerpts from it and, and comment on it, but here's where I would like to begin. Because he says in the following sentence what I said the last two weeks. Quote, Whereas the common law courts of England discerned and defined many legal principles in the first instance. Okay, I'm going to stop right there. What was I talking about? Remember, I've given the hypothetical about the dine and dash, that the person goes into the restaurant, says, hey, I'd like to order the lobster dinner. Uh, the restaurateur accepts the offer to provide it for the amount listed on the menu, provides it, the person eats it, and then runs off. And the first time that ever happened, whenever that may have happened, the court would have said, hmm, let's think, what are the fundamental principles? Remember I talked about that. Well, there's an offer here. Uh, there's an acceptance. There's the receipt. There was no defect in what was provided. You need to finish the contract. You need to keep the promise and the commitments that were made between you and the restaurateur. Okay, so that's what he's saying. So let me repeat it again. Whereas the common law courts of England discerned and defined many legal principles in the first instance, the Constitution charged federal courts primarily with applying a limited body of written laws articulating those legal principles. Now, that last part is very, very important, so I'm going to stop again. Remember last week I talked about the importance of words and the, the importance of having a coherent succession of the covenant from the people who first wrote those words to the people who are now trying to understand those words. So what he's saying here is the court has in front of it, as opposed to just facts, and they're trying to discern what is this transcendent, 
unwritten law out there? What are the transcendent unwritten principles that it should apply to this dispute between these two people? He's saying, no, the Constitution gave us written laws, and notice what he says, articulating those legal principles. In other words, the Constitution was written in the context of the common law. Its words are to be understood in light of the common law. And how often have I said that over the last few weeks? If you do not know the common law, you do not understand the Constitution. You'll depart from its meaning. And of course, that's exactly what the Supreme Court has done is, again, I've said over and over, they've taken the word liberty, which meant freedom of motion without prior restraint by other persons or the government. You can't grab me and throw me in your trunk and take me across the state lines. You know, the government can't just hold me in prison, okay, without charging me with some crime and so on and so forth. That is what you need to understand about liberty. But what has the court said? No, liberty now means, as we said last week, freedom. Well, freedom from what? Freedom to do what? Well, anything five justices on the Supreme Court want to let you do. So if you want to hire a doctor to kill another person, a baby in the womb, well, yeah, you have the freedom to do that. If, if you want the state to give you benefits and recognize the legitimacy of your marriage to a person of the same sex, or maybe someday three or four people, well, you have the freedom to do that. That had nothing to do with the liberty that was put in the written law that was articulating the legal principles of the common law. And then Justice Thomas follows with this sentence. This shift from common law to a written constitution, that's the shift he's referring to, profoundly affects the application of stare decisis today. See, that's what I was saying last week. Liberals want to confuse this idea that the common law had to discern and define legal principles as they went along based upon the facts that were presented to them with the idea that our Constitution itself is living and the words of the Constitution can be now infused with new meaning. That is exactly not what stare decisis was about. It is a misuse and abuse of the doctrine of stare decisis. Then he goes on and makes this incredible statement. It goes to the point that I've made that in its application of stare decisis, the court is committing constitutional malfeasance. And some in the legal community would say, I ought to be disbarred for saying that. But I'm only saying it because Clarence Thomas said it ahead of me and before me. And here's what he said, quote, in my view, the court's typical formulation of the stare decisis standard, we're going to talk about that in a, in a moment, it, it's typical formulation, does not comport with our judicial duty under Article 3. You remember, let's stop here. Article 3, we've talked about it, the court only has, quote, judicial power, the power of making judgments, not of will, making laws, that's left up to legislative bodies, or force uh, the executive branch to enforce the laws, just the judicial power. And if you'll remember, we said it only extended to certain kinds of cases or controversies. In other words, to the parties that are in front of the court. Its judgment can extend outside the people inside that courtroom, and thus they cannot be law for anybody that's not in the courtroom. 
So he goes on and says, because, here's why, he's saying, it does not comport with our judicial duty under Article 3. Because it elevates demonstrably erroneous decisions, meaning decisions outside the realm of permissible interpretation over the text of the Constitution and other duly enacted federal law, statutes, or treaties. Remember, that's what the Supremacy Clause says is supreme. The Constitution, its actual text and words, the laws of Congress made consistent with the Constitution and U.S. treaties. Now, let's, let's break this down a little bit, what he's saying here. We have decisions, he says, that are demonstrably erroneous. Now, if words have no meaning and can change their meaning over time to anything we want, well, as I said, we can't have a coherent succession. We can't communicate anything. There can't be any interpretation that would then be off limits because we just say, well, the words are malleable. So the word sex can now mean uh, who I like to have sex with. It can mean uh, a boy who thinks he's a girl and a girl who thinks he's a boy. You see what, what the court's been doing in, in its interpretation of words? He said, well, there, there, there can't be an erroneous decision. There can't be a, a wrong interpretation if words have no meaning, if they have no fixity from one generation to the next. And so he's saying that we have some decisions that are clearly outside the realm of permissible interpretation. The Constitution can't be so living, it can mean whatever I want it to mean, and I can't just infuse into the word liberty anything that I think people ought to have a freedom to do, because that has the court then making policy and law for everybody. And so he then says this, stare decisis doctrine gives the veneer of respectability to our continued application of demonstrably incorrect precedence. Now, what is he saying there? He's saying, well, we got Roe versus Wade wrong. But then in 1992, we came to another case, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, and we said, oh, man, that, that decision looks really wrong. It said there was a right to privacy in the Constitution. How in the world could we have come up with that? A right to privacy could open the door to anything. But we're going to apply the doctrine of stare decisis. To say we've already settled that the 14th Amendment allows abortion, we just shouldn't have maybe grounded it in this vague notion of privacy. Instead, we're, we're, we're going to affirm the central premise of Roe. Now, what does that do? That exalts the premise of a decision over the text of the Constitution, which is outside the scope of the judicial power. And they said we're going we're to infuse this word liberty with something contrary to the common law and say it's a liberty right for a woman to abort her child. Not just for her to abort her child, but to actually pay money to a third party to abort her child. You see, what he's doing is they're saying, oh, well, gee, uh, we've already decided this question, but even though it appears to be wrong, well, there's a central premise here that we've already decided kind of like the concept of fundamental principles at common law of offer and acceptance and payment. And so the court says, because of stare decisis, the importance of 
of the credibility of the court to not be perceived as having made mistakes, we will perpetuate the mistake by giving the word liberty a non-common law meaning and going from there. And so see, what he's saying is, you've, you've used this doctrine with people who don't really understand the doctrine and its purpose and its roots to give an air of respectability to the credibility of the court because it won't admit that it was actually wrong and its interpretation was outside the realm of permissible interpretation. And then he says exactly what I've been saying by explaining how this doctrine of stare decisis exalts the decisions of the court, the opinions of the court, over the text of the Constitution. And here's what he says. By applying demonstrably erroneous precedent, instead of the relevant law's text, as the court is particularly prone to do when expanding federal power or crafting new individual rights, the court exercises force and will, two attributes the people did not give it. And he cites to the Federalist Paper 78, which we've talked about, which I mentioned at the top of today's podcast. But let me go down and break this down a bit as well. He's saying here that we are prone to use this doctrine of stare decisis when we've done wrong. Now, why would I be so bold in making that statement? Because he said, when expanding federal power. Well, who's supposed to expand the, the, the power of the federal government? Uh, I believe it says the Constitution is supposed to be amended if the powers of the federal government are going to be ex extended. So he, he's conceding here when we've done wrong by an interpretation that actually expands the power of the federal government. And that's what they're doing with abortion. You see, issues of health and fundamental protection of personal security and liberty and property under the Ninth Amendment was retained by the people. And by the Tenth Amendment, it says the states and the people have the right to protect it. And the Fourteenth Amendment didn't change that at all. It didn't change it at all. But they, in essence, expanded the federal powers to say, no, the Fourteenth Amendment now prohibits the states from having laws that prohibit abortion or from deciding how to determine marriage and family law. And he goes on, notice, he said, or when crafting new individual rights. So we have this Bill of Rights, right? And he says, we're actually creating new rights, rights that don't exist, can't be found in the text. And you know what's even more ironic about that, friends? When you read the, wor the words of the Ninth Amendment, it is saying that the first eight amendments are not giving individual rights. They are enumerating existing pre-constitutional rights. And the very purpose of that enumeration was to make clear the federal government had no authority over those rights enumerated or over such other rights as the people had retained. So, so, so he's, in so many words, saying we do this, we apply this doctrine of stare decisis most often when we've actually done wrong.
to cover up our mistake and give it, as I just quoted him as saying, a veneer of respectability. But what they're actually doing when they do that, you see, is they're exercising force and will. And as we said, the judicial power itself, which is the only power the court has under Article Three, is not force nor will. I hope you can, can begin to, to see just how corrupt the Supreme Court has been over the last many years and how it has, has altered by its interpretations of the Constitution the Constitution, but they've only been able to do that. They've only been able to alter it because our government officials do not understand that the court can't make law and their decisions and their opinions are limited to the parties in the courtroom and if, as Abraham Lincoln said, who I've quoted in the past, those decisions are so clearly erroneous, then government officials exercising their own independent judgment to uphold the Constitution should say, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to allow that to be the precedent for future things. And that's exactly what Abraham Lincoln said. When we allow policy on vital points affecting the whole of the people to become irrevocably fixed the moment they are issued in in private lawsuits between private parties, we will have surrendered our government into the hands of that imminent tribunal, and that's exactly what our elected officials have done. Now, next week, we're going to talk about how that came about. What changed between the time the Constitution was adopted, between the quote that I gave you earlier about Madison a couple of weeks ago, and the quote I just gave you from Abraham Lincoln, what changed such that we now treat opinions of the Supreme Court as equivalent to the text of the U.S. Constitution no matter how absurd or demonstrably erroneous they are. And I hope, again, my friends, if you're pro-life in particular, share this podcast with your friends. People need to understand this so that we don't continue to lose our freedoms. And I look forward to being with you again next week on God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.